This episode contains subject matter and language which may not be appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Case Acquaint. You have found episode 22. Quick update for you on Peyton Fields. We were contacted by some listeners who are Pender County locals, and they wanted to make sure that you all know that there's an upcoming candlelight vigil for Peyton on April 28, 2018 at 7 p.m. Meet at the Pender County Courthouse. If you're living in that area, please consider stopping by and expressing your support for their efforts to honor Peyton's young life and demand justice for her suffering and for her senseless murder. We have most of the details posted on most of our social media and our website, casequaint.com, if you want to check it out. Many thanks to the community members who are keeping this story at the forefront and who have no intention of letting the sheriff's office ignore it. That said, on with our story for this week. We chose to schedule production of this episode for this week because it was on April 27, 1980, that 14-year-old Lorene Ann Ron was found to have disappeared from her Manchester, New Hampshire home, and there have never been any validated sightings of her since. This is the story of a young teenager who seemed to just have disappeared into thin air. It's also a story of the damage that can be done to a case when a disappearance is not taken seriously at the very beginning for what it was. Also, there are so many creepy details you're going to hear about in this case, but we want to keep in mind most of these creepy details may not have anything at all to do with Lorene's disappearance and could be purely coincidence because they could never verify that Lorene was ever in any of the places from which these details originated. We're going to tell you what we could find out about the case and it'll be up to you to decide what you think happened to Lorene. Lorene and Ron lived in Manchester, New Hampshire on a third level apartment on Merrimack Street published accounts of the police report state that she lived at 239 Merrimack Street, but there's no such address. 289 Merrimack Street seems like a reasonable alternative, but we can't be sure, of course. It's a triple-decker, and triple-deckers are apartment buildings that are built to appear, that are built to appear to be kind of like a folk Victorian single-family home, but it's really an apartment building. There are three floors, and if you lived on the third floor, most of the time you're going to find a fire escape. And most every multifamily building on that street is a wood-framed triple-decker. Probably around 100 years old at the time, Lorene disappeared. Now, Lorene was like most girls her age. She liked to sing and dance. She wanted to be a movie star. Didn't we all? She hadn't lived on that street for a super long time, and we don't know a whole lot about what her home life was like, 
but we do know that Lorraine's mom, Judith, was a single mom. On April 26, 1980, Judith spent the day at an out-of-town tennis tournament with her then-boyfriend. Lorene, who was a seemingly normal 14-year-old who had good grades at school, asked if she could stay home that night and have a friend over. Her mom said yes. So Judith spent the day out of town at the tennis tournament, and she arrived home at about 1.15 a.m. The first thing she noticed was that the bulbs in the building's main hallway lights for each floor had been unscrewed from the sockets, making the hallways dark. She also noticed that her front apartment door was unlocked. After she got inside the apartment, she also noticed that her back door was wide open. All else seemed just fine, so she didn't worry too much. A little while later, though, Judith decided to check on Lorene again, and that's when she noticed that it was not Lorene in her bed, it was Lorene's friend. So she woke Lorene's friend up and asked her where Lorene was. Her friend said she's asleep on the couch, but Lorene was nowhere to be found. In the early hours of the morning of April 27th, the Manchester police responded to a 3.45 a.m. call to the apartment for a report of a missing 14-year-old girl. The initial police investigation revealed that there were no signs of a struggle in the apartment, and they concluded that Lorene may have just left the apartment willingly with the intent of returning momentarily or even the next day, as she didn't take any clothing, money, or personal items with her. Lorene Ron has not been seen or heard from since. What you just heard was the authorities' account of this case. That's mostly the extent of the information you're going to get. And this is where we start to have differing accounts that contain many more details and some different details, but none of these can be verified unless the police decide to put out a different statement. So as you heard, Mom leaves, Lorene gets her friend over there. It's been said that they went over to a little corner store, which is only about two houses down and across the street. This was a place the neighborhood kids often hung out at, and Lorene apparently worked there at times, helping to restock items, including beer and wine. They met up with some guys at the store. One was 18, one was 21. Some say there was only one male friend, and he's referred to as a boy. Either way, they all spent the evening at the apartment drinking beer and wine. The account from the one boy who claimed to have been in the apartment was that they heard noises in the hallway at some point, and so he decided to leave, thinking it was Lorene's mom. He said he snuck out the back door, and he also made sure to tell authorities that he heard the door lock behind him as he left. Turned out not to be Lorene's mom coming home. Lorene and her friend were now alone in the apartment together. After a while, they decided to go to bed. Lorene told her friend that she could take Lorene's own bed, and Lorene took a blanket and a pillow out to the living room for the couch. When Judith got home and after a while figured out Lorene wasn't there and woke the friend up, the friend admitted that they had been drinking. Judith began making phone calls and ended up calling the police not long thereafter. According to Judith and other family members, the police weren't all that worried about Lorene. They'd seen this a million times. 
They thought she must have been a runaway and she'd be home soon, even though Lorene had not taken anything with her, not even the shoes she'd been wearing that day. She left all the money she had and everything else she would have taken with her if she'd intended to leave the house for any reason. So the investigation got off to a leisurely start, like most of them did and still do when a 14-year-old has been drinking and having friends over while the parents are away. But soon it became clear that Lorene was truly missing and that something must have happened to her. She wasn't all that rebellious. She hadn't run away before. There's nothing anywhere saying that she'd ever expressed an interest in doing so. She might have had some boys over, but being only 14 and inebriated, it just doesn't seem realistic that Lorene decided that she was just going to run away, just walk out the door with no shoes on, no money, and no purse. But that's what the police thought. The boy that is in all the reports, who is unnamed, was apparently cleared. It is said that he committed suicide at some point later on. Might that have anything to do with Lorene? Would an 18-year-old and 21-year-old be capable of luring a 14-year-old girl away from her apartment and affecting her total disappearance? If not them, who? Turns out, there are all sorts of theories on what happened to Lorene. First off, a person who claims to be a former friend of Lorene's said that a sex offender lived in the apartment beneath Lorene and Judy and that he had ingratiated himself to them somehow. We don't hear anything from police about whether or not they did a door-to-door -door sweep of the area, and if so, how deeply they questioned this sex offender. There is information that he did say that he heard voices that night, just as the boy had, but the police never seemed to seriously consider him for some reason. Also, it was well known that something strange was going on in the area lately, and it didn't stop with Lorene's disappearance. Other women and girls had been murdered and had gone missing as well, and we'll touch on that just a little bit later on. So Judith was sort of left to just wait for Lorene to come back. After a period of several weeks, police decided that Lorene must have stepped outside the apartment to meet or speak with someone briefly, intending to come back, but at some point must have met with foul play. There was no news on Lorene until Judith received her October phone bill, and on it she noticed some odd charges. Three calls had been made and charged to her account. Two calls were from one Santa Monica motel to another Santa Ana motel. The other call was to a teen sex advice hotline. Those hotlines back then served a couple purposes. They were there to offer confidential support and advice they also were supposed to provide resources, and if you were a volunteer on one of the better-known or larger-scale helplines, you'd been given a big book full of resources for pretty much any problem out there that had an actual organizational response. So, for example, if a kid called in and wanted to know about venereal disease, or STIs as it's now called, there would be a list of resources to give them. Some lines even had nurses that could answer simple questions. In the 80s, these helplines were at their peak popularity. Problem is, some places were not necessarily there to help, but they had other agendas, even though they would portray themselves as hotlines. Judith couldn't figure out why she was charged for these calls. She didn't know anyone in California, so she hired a private investigator to go check it out. 
First of all, let's address how this could have happened, since many of you listening might not have ever had to deal with this type of thing. Back then, if you were at a hotel, you'd be charged for local calls most of the time. This was very expensive. So in order to avoid that cost, you could make a third-party call instead of making a collect call, and those charges would go to your home phone line. There are a couple ways to do this. You could dial zero and then the phone number you wish to call. Then you would be prompted to enter your phone number and then a PIN number that usually the only person paying the bill would know. So that would authorize the charge. The other way was just to call the operator and tell them the phone numbers and the PIN number. When I was a kid, I used to do this all the time. Now my mom never gave me that PIN number, but I'd talk to the operator and every time I'd be able to talk her into putting my third party call through without the PIN number because the operators had that ability. My mom would then get the bill and then she'd call and complain to the telephone company and sometimes the charges would get taken off and sometimes they wouldn't. But it was always a source of frustration for my parents and they always knew who the culprit was by finding out who was being called. Usually it was something like the Billy Idol fan club so I could get on their mailing list. I'd call from the library when I was supposed to be finding a book to read. So I think if a kid is doing the calling, the operators must have been able to use discretion. The private investigator went out there, he found the motels, he found the people behind the hotline, and he tried to find out what he could about whether or not Lorene had been there. He reported that the helpline was supposedly dedicated to adolescent sexual questions and was operated by someone claiming to be a plastic surgeon and whose name had not been released. This to me is the most bizarre part of the story. Now, I know we're dealing with California here, but why was a plastic surgeon having teenagers call him with their questions about sex? To top it off, he also had runaway girls coming to his house, not sure if they were staying there or not, but later on it said he came out with the story that one of these teenage runaway girls who was around at the time had been from New Hampshire and she was with an older lady. When they left his house, they planned on going to New York. Then he mentioned a well-known porn actress, saying she would probably know this girl. It was reported that this plastic surgeon produced child porn from his home, but he has since disappeared. This stuff, like someone's name, address, business name, and his criminal record would have been so easy to verify, but it appears that this was never done. Why? Later on, those motels were supposedly found to have been used to create some child porn by a person calling himself Dr. Z. That's all we know. There's no record we can find of a child porn producing Dr. Z anywhere. Although, I'm not going to say there must not have been one, we just don't know. The other thing that happened to Judith was that she said she was getting mysterious phone calls. According to her, the phone would ring at 3.45 a.m. on a regular basis. They'd answer the call, but the caller wouldn't say anything, and then the caller would hang up. Happened every Christmas for years, she said. Another odd phone-related detail was that a person named Roger Murray, who had been friends with Loreen, received a call as well. Six years after her disappearance, he says his mom answered a call from a lady 
who said she was either Loreen or her name could have been Lori, and she said she was Roger's ex-girlfriend. Judith has determined that this is evidence that Lorene was kidnapped or convinced by someone to run away and be used for prostitution or child porn, basically trafficked. She believes that Lorene made those calls in California and that Lorene is alive. There's a lot of talk about human trafficking lately. We talked about it on our last episode, and we can't say whether or not Lorene was kidnapped or put into human trafficking. I will say that it's rare that a 14-year-old would be kidnapped and taken over 3,000 miles away just to turn her into a prostitute. Why would someone have to resort to that when they could just do the same thing out in California? Maybe they worked their way to California. I don't know. But what I do know is that most of the time when children are kidnapped and they just disappear without any warning signs to speak of, chances are they've met with foul play of a more violent and permanent nature. That's not to say it's impossible and that it couldn't happen. Judith certainly believes that that's what happened. Could Lorene have been groomed by a pimp who promised other things? It's possible. In fact, the whole business of getting young girls to traffic was much different back then than it is now. Back in the 80s, we didn't have social media or Backpage. Grooming a young person to fool them into becoming one of your prostitutes was an in-person activity, and it did happen. The only problem is that they weren't usually snatched from inside their homes in the middle of the night. Usually, they went somewhat willingly, even though they may not have understood fully what they were getting themselves into, just as young people today end up in that situation. If that did happen to Lorene, there's almost no chance that her friends didn't know about it and weren't also approached, and then the question would become, why would any of her friends remain silent about it all these years? But if we allow ourselves just for a few minutes to go down that rabbit hole for Judith, Let's put into perspective in terms of what did that lifestyle look like in the late 70s and early 80s? Well, Lorene would have been put to work immediately. She'd also have been given drugs as well, most likely crack, since that was largely the most popular drug for prostitutes at the time. And Lorene would have been working those streets. In the 80s, the business of prostitution was much different than today. It was the way to sell sex to strangers. Like I said, no social media, no back page, no websites. Prostitutes and pimps who traveled, and many, many did, used what they called tracks. These were well-known swaths of city blocks that prostitutes would walk back and forth. Every so often, the cops would come in and perform stings or sweeps, making a bunch of arrests, and then it was at that point it would be time to move on to a different city with a different track. To this day, every major city still has a track, but they're nowhere near as crowded with street-walking prostitutes as before the digital age. I can kind of illustrate what it might have looked like from, I guess, my own perspective. I wasn't a prostitute, but I, I had a really small window to glimpse what that life was like, at least for a few hours a day. This is a long time ago when I was a college freshman. I got a job at a 24-hour Winchell's donut shop, which was right around the corner from my crappy apartment and in a seedy area of the city. 
It was the best area of town I could afford, and at the time, I was too naive coming from a small town to even know what a seedy area was. The whole city scared me. But there I was working the swing shift every night at Winchell's, and it took about a month before I figured out that almost all my customers were pimps and prostitutes. It was the perfect location because it was right on the corner of a main road and the intersecting street was dark with several abandoned properties. I started to notice a pattern. The pimp sat in a booth, keeping a sharp eye out the window. A car would pull up, prostitute would get in, it would drive off. Not long after that, the car would pull up again, the prostitute would get out and walk straight into the shop, hand her money to the pimp and go right back to the corner. And they did this for hours and hours, my entire shift. Sometimes the pimp would have to conduct some sort of business so he'd have to leave. I don't know what kind of business it was. And I started getting to know some of the prostitutes. Most of them were interested in nothing other than what was going on right then and there. They were waiting for more drugs. They had no idea, nor did they care, what tomorrow was going to bring. There was one prostitute, though. She was very personable. She seemed like a really smart woman and didn't appear to be addicted to drugs like the rest. She acted sort of like a mom to the others who were all much younger than she was. In addition to turning tricks, she appeared to be the person who would kind of train a new girl on what to do. The pimp hardly spoke to any of the girls himself unless he was barking out an order or throwing out some insult that would produce a self-satisfied chuckle. I asked this lady, why do you do this for a living? She told me matter-of-factly, look at my teeth. How am I going to get a decent paying job? Her teeth did not seem that bad to me. She told me she was working at another job she always had, and she was, at the time, serving tables at JB's Big Boy. It was a restaurant downtown It was attached to one of the touristy hotels. There's good money there, she said. You should try it. I know you're only making minimum wage here. That I could not deny. But over time, I found out that she ran away when she was 12 years old, and she was immediately put to work by a man, this man, who was the Winchell's Donuts pimp. He had met her while she was hanging out at a bus stop talking to her friends, and after a few days, he had singled her out, asking her if she wanted to be a star. She, of course, told him she did. He told her he was a movie producer, but he was leaving town that night, so she left with him. When I heard this, I was astonished. That must have been 30 years ago, I said. What did your mom and dad say? She snorted. Yes, it was almost 30 years ago. I was bouncing around from one foster home to another. I didn't have a mom and dad by the time I was 12. She said, now I have kids I'm trying to get back. I need to make enough money to get myself a place, get my teeth fixed, and get a good job so I can show them that I can take care of my kids. She had five kids living in foster care or group homes in three different states. She didn't know who any of the fathers were except for the oldest kid who belonged to the pimp. She told me, I need to get my shit together. I'm working with a girl right now who's younger than a couple of my daughters. I wonder what's going to happen to them if I don't make sure they stay out of this mess. The girls on the Winchell's corner acted much older than they actually were. 
Maybe I should have said something to one of the many cops who regularly stopped in for coffee. But I figured, why? Didn't they know a pimp was sitting there drinking his own coffee and eating muffins while these ladies worked the corner? They could have easily asked any one of those ladies for ID, but they never did, not once in front of me. But the last thing my new friend ever said to me was, you stay in school and stay away from drugs so you don't wind up like me. Keep those pretty teeth. The next night, there was no pimp and no girls. They seemed to have just disappeared. It was kind of lonely there all by myself. But a few days later, I arrived from my 3 p.m. shift to find new girls standing on the corner. As I walked in, I noticed there was also a man sitting at a booth, sipping coffee, and keeping an eye out the window. I never saw the original crew again, but I later learned from one of the new girls that they routinely switched places with other crews, rotating through various cities from time to time when the police became too bothersome or someone missed a court date. Some prostitutes whose drug problems weren't as debilitating and who could for whatever reason command more money were called, and I know this is a very disrespectful term, but this is what they called them, circuit hoes. I don't know if they're still called that or if they have a new name now, but that's what they were called back then. They didn't so much move due to common street police sweeps, it was more like they followed high attendance events like championship sports games or large trade conventions that would attract businessmen from all over the country or the world. These women would usually place newspaper ads for escorts or they would get themselves under the umbrella of a local escort service. Either way, the prostitutes in the 80s at the time Lorene disappeared were commonly in transit unless they had necessary resources concentrated in one area. So that, to me, is what Lorene's life might have looked like since they never found her in any porn. She also would have created good value as a young prostitute. Police believe that after Lorene's friend went to sleep, Lorene slipped out to speak with or see someone, and that encounter caused Lorene to meet a violent end, and that her body has not been found. That is a theory they have been working with all these years. Was it someone Lorene knew? The sex offender downstairs? the boy or men she spent time with that night? Any of them could have been more than capable of unscrewing all the light bulbs, luring Lorene quietly out of the apartment, and even making those 3.45 a.m. phone calls. Another theory is the serial killer's theory. There are many other unsolved disappearances and murders that took place around the time that Lorene went missing. Many of the victims were eerily similar in appearance to Lorene, and many of those events happened in close proximity to Lorene's apartment. Also brought up has been the nearby Connecticut River Valley killer, who has never been definitively identified. The killings started in the late 70s and ended in the late 80s. Then there was Terry Rasmussen, whose career has not been fully pieced together, but appears to have been a prolific killer of people with whom he had relationships. We're not going to get into all the victims that some think might be related to Lorene's disappearance, but we're going to list them on our website, and if you want to go check them out, please do. We might revisit this whole subject on a later episode. So as you've heard, there are many theories in play about Lorene's disappearance, and unfortunately, I think the weird child porn and 
human trafficking angle served to confuse investigators and to mess with Judith's emotions. Somebody, even if it was Lorene, was very cruelly bothering her needlessly over the years. Judith ended up moving away and she got a new phone number. Some people wonder why Judith would do that. Well, if Lorene is alive, Judith is not hiding or anything. She's always been pretty easy to find, I think. And Lorene would know that she's a missing person. She could just walk into a police station and let them know who she is. But unfortunately, Judith has spent all these years hoping for Lorene's return. And she's been consulting psychics or she's been susceptible to charlatans and all sorts of other people who claim to want to help her. But it appears have not done her one bit of good thus far. What do you think about Lorene, her mysterious disappearance, and all the bizarre developments that came into play over the course of the years since April 27, 1980? Do you think Lorene became a porn actress? A prostitute? Did something happen to her that very night and all the phone calls were just red herrings? Do Lorene's friends know more than they're letting on? What possible reason would they have for not telling the full truth? Let us know what you think about this case. If you visit Lorene's blog post at caseacquaint.com, we're going to be posting pictures of the apartment building we think Lorene lived in, the store we think she'd been hanging out at, and also some old newspaper clippings that might give you a sense of what you'd see if you were a teen or anyone looking for a helpline during the heyday of the crisis hotline. Thank you for listening to Lorene's story. We'll talk again soon.